Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has five years of law enforcement analysis experience with 18 years of law enforcement experience overall. He's a Danish officer, investigator, and was an operations analyst. He is currently the manager of the Danish intelligence-led policing project. He is an officer, an analyst, and an academic. Please welcome Jacob Lindegard Benson. Jacob, how are we doing? Hey, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you doing, Jason? I am doing very well. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank you for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate it. As I mentioned yesterday in the prep call, it's been two years. It was March of 2021 that I first emailed you asking if you wanted to be on the podcast. And so Sam yeah. recommending you. And, and so it's it's been a little bit of journey to get us here. So I'm really excited to sit down with you today. Well, thank you. I'm sorry for the delay. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. been it's been busy years, but I'm glad to be on. Thanks, man. Before we get into this interview, you were a guest on Reducing Crime podcast with Jerry Radcliffe in 2018. And I will put the link to that podcast in the show notes. I listened to that last night. It was interesting to get your perspective on during that time as well. Yeah, that was a quite a stressing podcast at that time. I remember I was doing the European Crime Analysis Conference that time and Jerry was like, Jacob, can you come to my room? I need to talk to you. And then without knowing it, two minutes after I had a microphone on my shirt and he was asking me all these tough questions, you know, but yeah, it was fun. <laughs> He's a fun guy. <laughs> yeah, in the beginning, it did sound like he, he was like, I was like, I'm not sure if I even am speaking English correctly. Like I was <laughs> like, it, you putting that little spin on it makes sense now. It fills in the gap because I was just like, why does it sound like a microphone was just shoved in his face? But, no, yeah, it, but it was, you know, so yeah, but yeah. it's all good. It's a long time ago, actually, you know, it's a lot of things have happened since 2018. And it's funny to think about that and think back. But I think we will get into that doing this conversation here. But a lot of things yeah. have happened for sure. I, I don't know if this is always going to happen, but there's going to be landmark times in our, at least there has been in, since I've been alive, you know, with, with 9-11 here in the, in the States, that's always going to be a benchmark in terms of what was it like before that date? What was it like after that date? And then mm. obviously with COVID, that's mm. going to be a benchmark in our lives forever mm. like what was it like before what was it like after and i don't know if these are gonna always be about 20 years apart <laughs> i don't know mm -hmm. but it does no. seem like when major major events happen you're always going to use those as tent poles in your mm. memory and as you look back mm. You know, when you're running Project Glass, that the project I'm running, the ILP project in Denmark, it's a, you know, big change program, program of change in the organization. You know, it can be really, really tough to just look at like six months back. You don't feel any change at all. And that's why you sometimes need to be able to look back 10 years and see that change. You know, that is something that, you know, the esteemed Rachel Tuffin from College of Policing, I I've met her a few times. She was also at, at the conference we just hosted in Denmark. And she always says, well, Jacob, you need to look five years back and see what change have, I mean, what have happened in these last five years, because it can be very frustrating to just look back one year and say, well, nothing happens, you know, we're still at the same place. But if you do go further back, you see a, a huge change. And that that kind of what keeps me going. If <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> yeah. you, need a, can... you need a little injection of success every once in a while. I see. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Good deal. Like I ask most of my guests, how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, you know, you would call me what you call, I mean, a pregademic. I did not start out becoming a police officer and then from there dive into the field of research and academia, which is. I see, at least in Denmark, is often the case where you actually go further on. No, I started out at university and actually back in the late 1990s, 
damn, that makes me old now. But <laughs> in the in the late 1990s, I studied in the U.S. for a year. I studied at Southwest Missouri State University, and then from then on, I went I went back to Denmark again, and I studied in at the university for five or even six years, and got my master's in yeah 2005 in history. I did my thesis on definition of terrorism. But after that, I joined the Danish police. I came into the academy, and yeah, so, that's been so, like 18 years ago. Well, you know, started. How, how did you even? find Southwest Missouri University. Oh, that I don't even want to go into that story. It's just a <laughs> long, you know, I was young and I met people, you know, so I went, What's I went the... to the U.S. and traveled around. And so then I just decided to stay there for a while and try to try to do something else than just staying in Denmark. So I was lucky to get into Southwest just just for a year. And I mean, mm -hmm. that was actually wonderful to see how different it is living in in the Midwest, you know, compared yeah, to know. living in compared to living in Copenhagen you know yeah well, I was I was gonna say you 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 said Midwest I was like I don't know if Southwest Missouri University is representative of the United States it probably is representative of the Midwest but so yeah, you, well let's you, just you, call that then <laughs> you, you, you get that aspect of it so did you yeah. did you have an idea at the time that you wanted to become an officer well not when I was young no for mm -hmm. sure not I wanted I mean when I lived in the U.S. I and mean, even prior to that, I wanted, I just remember I wanted to be a writer or something, you know. But, you know, when I started at university and I got more and more into into the studies of, of terrorism, I could see, yeah. all right, this is this is a field that I want to dive into. And I was actually pretty lucky when I when I did my, my final thesis, I, I reached out for some of the most famous writers that I know of, a guy called, you know, Noam Chomsky. You probably heard of him, but he is, yeah. And I, I wrote him as like, because I was I was struggling with the whole definition of terrorism. And then I just, I, I read some books by him and then I, I basically just sent him an email asking him a question. And I mean, just within a day, he was, he was writing me back and that ended out in an interview with him about how to define terrorism, why, at that time, state terrorism wasn't part of the American definition, uh, blah, blah, you know, that. so that went on. And that was a quite interesting discussion. And that kind of opened my path towards that I wanted to work with in this field. So when I was done with that in 2005, I was like, all right, you know what? I'll try to become a police officer and work in this field. So it's kind of, kind of, it was really different going from, you know, university to going mm -hmm. to become a police officer, but I wouldn't. I mean, I loved yeah. it. I loved going to the academy, actually. I think I thought it was really fun. Yeah. So then, so as an officer, then you are, you know, you're working on your communication skills. You're working on identifying the community behavior and just knowing the problems and and working working your way through outside the, of the the academia outside of books and research you're you're getting to know the people correct mm -hmm. i mean i love the part of actually combining you know theory and practice that is how i think we can make the biggest impact i'm not saying that they can't do it both from different ends you know what i mean but being able to actually viewing the issues we are having from from both perspective and then be critical towards own practice that is something that we need to be really really better at at least from a Danish perspective when it comes to policing. And and I think having a perspective where you have somewhat a solid understanding of a theory, and then you can test that in practice. I think that is a fortunate situation to be in sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it's also a fortunate situation when you run projects like, like me, you know, where you want to change the organization towards becoming more knowledge-driven. And sometimes, you know, in the 2015, 2016, it was not so popular to talk about ILP as it is today. So yeah. sometimes it was even a good idea to put on a uniform, you know, <laughs> being standing in front of other cops, it's easier than at that time, than being an academic standing in front of a police officer who at that time just didn't embrace this knowledge-driven and more evidence-based approach as we try to implement today. Yeah. Now, were, yeah. in the beginning, when you first become an, an officer, were you treated like an academic? Well. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah, in school I was, you know, when I, you know, in Denmark at that time, you go to the ac academy for, I think it was three and a half years at that time, mm -hmm. which is a quite long time to go to, like, uh, to, to the academy. So, and I thought that 
I actually think that at that time, the classes and the subject that we studied was really, really good. But I was this uh, bit of a nerdy guy who, who who had read some books and have been at the university. You know, when I had my job the first time I came into the National Police, in, that was in 2010, I don't think there was anyone else in my department that had a master and also being a police officer, you know. That is just, that is so different from today. You know, we don't, there's so many people who are so well educated today, you know, so I, but today I feel stupid. (laughs) (laughs) It was that before though, because I, I feel just when you're saying that, I feel that, you know, most people will become an officer first and then on the side work to get their master's or PhD on their own time it's not a situation where like what you had where you had the education first and then you became an officer yeah that's i mean that 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 wasn't normal at that time at all Mm -hmm. it's and i don't think it's that normal today either but we do have a lot of uh, we do have cops coming in and starting at at the academy who have masters as well so uh, but at that time no it wasn't often uh, it wasn't something that everybody was and it was it was fun to be to to have that view on it as well you know and i think i i mean it was a bit easier for me to go to the academy because i was i mean reading books and writing reports wasn't that hard for me to begin with you know so i could actually focus on on some of the other stuff that 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 might was easier for some of the other guys you know and girls yeah in class and and that was my thought too is it it's not nice to see diversity Right. You're you're going to want a a variety of people going through police academies. You know, you you came through academia, but there's going to be certain people that come through the military, some people that have, you know, come maybe right out of either high school or, you know, are very, very young, haven't had maybe another job. Or then you have people that are more experienced, have a little bit of experience or a little older Mm -hmm. and, you know, and it you learn from one another and you you get the different perspectives and it's just like even at even at universities right it's mm-hmm. you don't get a you don't get a cohort that's basically from all from southwest missouri <laughs> you true, get people true. from all true. over the all over the world and and different a variety of perspectives and opinions yeah true and I know we are not going to talk about 2023 right now because we are talking back back in time. But I have to say that that diversity, which that you point out, which is so, so important in policing, we don't have that diversity enough today either. You know, and now I also talk about gender, you know, and they mm. just just I mean, in Danish police today, I think it's like 7 percent, 7.7 percent of leaders in Danish police are women. I mean, 7.7, that is not diversity when it comes to gender, oh, okay. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that is terrible. And so we, we still need to discuss this. And But at that time when I started there, it was fun to, we were a lot of people from different backgrounds and with different perspective on life, you know? Mm-hmm. I was also one of the older ones, you know? I was 29 when I got into to the yeah. police academy. I was the, I think there was one guy who was older than me. I was happy about that. And so I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you had like, people in the early 20s right 21 22 and there is a huge difference from i had my first i had a daughter at that time when i started the academy right and so it's 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 different you have a life experience but then you also have that naivety of young people just being all you know open to the world which is wonderful so yeah yeah so how did you transition from being an officer to being an analyst well when i started in 2005 the first five years i worked Basically, as a frontline police officer, I worked mm-hmm. in worked in Copenhagen, in some of the tough places in Copenhagen, actually. And it was a really, really interesting and important lesson in my life to to see all that, you know. And that is the thing. When you go to university for six years, you become one of those privileged ones that actually know how to read books and write articles. But when you get out in the street and you see how lonely people could be how poor they can be how much how less opportunities they have compared to you and where you come from you know it's it's a very very strong experience in my life but so it was five really really good and interesting and knowledgeable years for me to to bring into the analysis realm because i started i think it was in 2010 or 2011 i started as an operation analyst at the national center of investigation which was the national police at that time in denmark and at that time, I simply just I work with Danish investigators, supporting 
large cases, investigative support. I worked huge transnational crime cases with some of the investigators in the beginning. And I was, I mean, I was so fortunate that I also got into to some of the work that they do in Europol. I don't know how familiar you are with Europol's impact world work, sorry, but impact, I believe it stands for a European multidisciplinary platform against criminal threats. That's what impact stands for. Okay. And at that time we're looking at, I mean, I was in the, in the drug impact. So we looked at drug routes and all this. And at that time, having an academic background, having some years as an investigators and then coming in as an analyst and then moving into this world, it was so interesting and so frustrating too <laughs> to see the huge amount of drugs getting in from you know into europe from south america yeah. um, so so we did some some interesting work with the platform in europe and at this time when you're working is is are you mostly studying data and and, and the reason i ask it that way is a lot of times there won't be a lot of written articles or written publications that you can consume on this stuff. This is, it can be just that you are only studying data and maybe getting some briefs from those on the front lines type thing. But is is it mostly data you're studying now or am I wrong? Is there, is there actually a lot of written documents that you can consume? Do you mean back in 2016 when I worked with, with Europol, I worked as an analyst at yes. that time? Or do you, yes. Yeah, at that yeah, time. Yeah. You know, basically what we were doing there was what we were crunching data and supporting the investigators, you know, giving them, making them make decisions based on information, based on data we had. So we were, we're even supporting, you know, looking at called transcript when, you know, we're on wiretaps, we're doing some, some simple social network analysis at that time. That was just kind of, you know, the whole, you know, it was 50, it was like in 13 and basically we're doing descriptive analysis at that time. You know, we were making nice little charts, you know, with, yeah. <laughs> with the uh, kingpins in the middle and then, you know, two lines behind be, between two entities and that looked like a really nice spider web you know that was what <laughs> we were doing but but you know this description analysis it can actually also do something you know it actually makes it easier for the investigators to know who are we looking at who should we target our investigation towards and that was mainly what we were doing at that time yeah so crunching data getting the data we could and then coming up with hypotheses and some recommendations but and that that brings me to the next question so to speak is that at that time, you did not say things like hypothesis, you know, and yeah. I think I mentioned that too in, in the in podcast Jerry's, I did yeah, in 2018. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because, you know, you don't, you don't say, well, my hypothesis is that, oh, I have five competing hypotheses. And based on that, I come up with a, an abductic reasoning that, that ends out with a conclusion with these recommendations. You know, if you say that in 2016, you basically get kicked out of the room, right? <laughs> You're like, who is that nerd? So yeah. you always have to adapt to this to the circumstances you are in. And at that time, we basically just supported investigators with the data we had. And yeah. I do still feel that in police departments, universities are kept at arm's length. There is a hesitancy to really get into academia projects. And it actually goes back to the point I was trying to make just a moment ago is just the amount of written documentation that's out mm. there. Because mm. you go into like a military environment and you're talking about intelligence analysts, there's mm. going to be article after article after article written sure. about sure. whatever topic you want to. But when it comes into law enforcement analysis, there's not a lot of documentation written down yeah. and sure. I, I feel that when police departments hear that academia is coming into the picture they're like oh we're gonna have to read some 20 page article <laughs> and some you know hypothesis and know about testing and all all that other stuff and it and it seems like they're whether that's right or wrong, but it, it, it just feels like, oh, this is going to be too scientific. This is going to be too nerdy, as you you put it, and it's mm -hmm. not really mm -hmm. going to help me right away. And I think right. that's kind of the mentality that a lot of police departments have in working with academia. And there is, there, I mean, there is some truth to it too, right? I mean, there is some, there is some things that we need to, to, to take into consideration. I think it's a little bit easier 
I'm not saying that it's easy, but sometimes it can be easier to be a pragmatic where you also see from the perspective of actually have been an investigator before, knowing what mm-hmm. you need to know before you can actually go and do, let's say, these arrests and all that. But, but I, I mean, you're absolutely right. And just, I mean, even today, looking at ILP and the project that, that I'm running right now, there's not that much literature and research on ILP. You know, there's some books on ILP and some articles, true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's not a huge amount of, of 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 knowledge on this topic that so so yeah. But when it comes to military, I see I see your point. There is a lot here. But recent year that has come a lot though. You know, compared to what how it looked in 2015, right? So, but yeah, it's uh, but it's very interesting that you. I mean, you raised some some serious questions here <laughs> when it comes to 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 the investigator and the analyst, right? So how is that? How is that cooperation between these two? And I mean, I can say from a Danish and also from some somewhat European perspective that I think that the cooperation between analyst investigator has 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 been so so much stronger today than it was just 10 years ago. It's not, you know, you it's not that many cases today, at least in Denmark, where you don't have analysts sitting next to you and helping you. I mean, just figuring out all this data, you know, as many writers always write, you know, we are information rich and knowledge poor. And that also comes when it comes to this, you need, you need someone to be able to actually structure and maneuver your way through all this data. And that is what the analyst can do for you. And it kind of pushes on the whole thing of what is the role of an analyst. And I know we get into that later on, but do, I mean, there is some question that that analyst always need to ask is that, okay, do we have any evidence that points, points in that direction? Have we ever missioned it? If we have, do we know it works? What about all the things that we do against? I mean, in Denmark, we do a lot about gangs and motorcycle gangs, you know, all the things we do, do they have any impact? If they do, show it to us. And if you don't have that evidence, you, I mean, it's hard to know which direction you're going, right? So, yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned, I work with Europol and looking back and looking at all the huge amount of cocaine coming in from South America to Europe, have that changed over time? That is also a good question to ask, you know, how come the prices are stable or maybe even lower today? You know, uh, all the initiative that we're doing around the world and in Europe, I mean, do they make any difference whatsoever? They might, they might actually, because if we did not do them, it will look much worse. That can be something, but at least we need to try to start looking at and mission it so we have a baseline to make, to draw decision upon. Yeah, but what you're describing though is the a higher level of analysis, right? We, you start out with the descriptive analysis, which hmm. is analyzing the data, consuming the data, summarizing the data. And yeah. at that level, in the beginning stages, you can get a variety of people to do that job right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody. I'm not saying that you can just throw anybody in there, but there's a lot of people out there that could crunch numbers and give you reports and summarizing the data at that level. But the next levels where it comes into where you really become a subject matter expert, whether it's on outlaw motorcycle gangs or drug trafficking or theft rings, you name it, Mm, mm, that's a whole other level of analysis that really takes someone to study the particular problem and to gain an expertise in in that field. And I feel a lot of people stay, a lot of analysts stay in that bottom level and never get up to those other levels of being actually an expert in it. Mm, yeah, I think when we teach in analysis and we talk about analysis, we, we often distinguish between also, as you mentioned, like descriptive and more exploratory analysis, right? And what you're saying is that, all right, well, we often end up just doing descriptive analysis, but when, when you become an expert and you know what question to ask your data, you become much more exploratory, right? Mm-hmm. And that is, and that is basically, I mean, that is where we want to go. We want to we want to ask questions. We want to come up with things that people didn't know beforehand. You know, you know what I mean? It's a, mm-hmm. and that is something that, that gives quality and gives something new to the investigator. There's nothing, I mean, the worst thing you can do is that you can come as an analyst and you, then you can tell your, investiga- your investigation team something that they already knew 
And even worse, exactly. you can mention that all the data that you have based your analysis on that actually came from them, you know, so it's just, and then you stand up and say, Hey, I have this hypothesis, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, <laughs> oh, come on, man, we knew it all. So being more exploratory and then actually pushing yourself to ask questions, which is, I mean, getting some of these known unknowns in place, right? You know, and you know that the whole thing about known, known, known unknowns and unknown unknowns, but I think we need to move towards a bit asking questions that that is much more exploratory so we can get in front of what's going to happen. I mean, that is where we want to go. I know that's a tough question to put on yourself. But I think it can be difficult for analysts to get to that next level. It's going to take an interest. It can be whatever you you may have an interest in if it turns out to be outlaw motorcycle gangs and then but as mentioned before if if an analyst is interested in outlaw motorcycle gangs how mm -hmm. does he or she become a subject matter expert in that 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 road that journey is is not laid out for them right it's going to be, they're going to have to basically mow their own path true but I would also say that there is, I know that Jerry Ratcliffe also have been writing a bit about that, that you need to in some way create a system where that system actually does that for you. You know, you need mm -hmm. to make some kind of framework for your analyst. You know, in Denmark, we are working on what we call like the targeting framework that which is in, in process now where we actually look, how do we prioritize? How do we know things? And are we sure they're evidence-based and how could we test and track them? You know, mm -hmm. so, but you need to put up this scheme, this scheme of that when you're an analyst, there is some things, it could sound really rigid, but you need to have like a template. So you make sure, you know, also Jerry, he always talk about that. He have this checklist when he's flying his planes. Right. And I, and I, it can be funny and all that, but it, there mm -hmm. is a lot of truth to it because, you know, if you don't remember to ask all the right question, we end up with actually just describing things in a descriptive analysis realm that we want to go, as you mentioned, a step further, right? So I think I think there is there is something, of course, I agree with you, but there is also something as the organization need to put up. And that is a framework for the analyst to work within. And it's not always fair having these, I mean, amazing, brilliant, skilled analysts coming in from university. And how should they know, right? They they have mm -hmm. not been on the street. How should they know that that the drugs come from there and this is the route that it goes up to Europe or whatever, how economic crime is, is working? You know, all this, how should they know? But if we have a, a, a framework, a targeted framework where within where we actually make sure that we ask the right questions, then I think we are we at a better stage. And that is something that I think is when it comes to implementing some of the things that we have been talking about. I mean, and I think I will come back to that in the end of this, but mm -hmm. there is there's something about that, which is something that I really have to admit that I am not that good at, you know, and, you know, I'm good at bringing, coming up with good ideas, but actually implementing that is the toughest part. You know, you should, we should, instead of come up with 90 ideas and then implementing 10, we should go up with 10 ideas and then implement 90% of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, that is what I'm, so yeah, we need a framework and within that framework, it will be easier for the for the analysts to to ask those tough questions. Yeah. So yeah. In, in Denmark, what does the officers investigators expect out of the analyst? Well, it depends. I mean, we have basically there is a lot of uh, investigative support. You know, when you have a big case, you have analysts supporting those cases. You have mm -hmm. analysts helping frontline police officer where to go at a specific time. You know, instead of being in a you know, we do like some hotspot policing where you go to a specific area at a specific time because it doesn't make doesn't make any sense to go there between, let's say, 10 and 11, because, I mean, there's no crime at that time. So mm -hmm. analysts also come up with recommendation where to be at a specific time. We use analysts for more preventive matters. You know, uh, we from data, we can pick out who we should go and talk to, maybe have some exit strategies of people being involved in serious and organized crime that you can use, use analysts for that. And then we have, of course, the most strategic analyst. Uh, that is where I'm at. I'm at the special crime unit now where we do have, we have both, but we also have the more strategic, strategic level of analysts that are basically there to, to support decision makers to make informed decisions, which is kind of like the core of ILP, right? So different, different things, but a lot of good stuff. Mm -hmm.
Hi, this is Steve French, and I have a message to you about language. Language is really important when you're doing the job. For instance, it isn't a zucchini, it's a courgette. It isn't a lobby, it's a foyer. It isn't Z, it's Z. Buses go on routes, not routes, and it is never, ever made out of aluminum. So I'm Rachel Carson, and my public service announcement is to use queue time wisely. Now, I swear that we could all get through queues in half the time if people were ready for when they get to the front of those queues. Like you can be in a queue at an airport or in a shop and people get to the front and suddenly realise that like they need their passport or they need their money or whatever. The worst is at train stations here in the UK. So in most stations, there are automatic barriers and you need a ticket to get through. You know, it's no surprise the barriers are always there. And yet the number of people who walk straight up to them and then they spend five minutes rummaging through their bags to find their ticket, blocking the way for anyone else to get through. And when I was commuting daily, this was a huge stress factor for me. So, yes, my public service announcement is to be prepared and use queue time wisely. Let's get into ILP then, because, you know, you are now the manager of the ILP project in Denmark. Looking back then, well, let's, I guess let's first stop a second and let's define ILP first. Yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, when I, when I did my, my master's, I was writing about definitions of terrorism as mm-hmm. that's where I had Chomsky in as a rhetorical tool, right? And that is also when you do, I mean, there's so many definitions of ILP. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's not it's not easy to define ILP. We have a, a, a doctrine in Danish police where we actually define ILP. But basically what ILP is, it's like a, it's a business model. It's a what we call an organizational model for policing with a focus on informed decision making, on harm reduction, on disruption and prevention. I believe I believe it's best understood if you read Jerry Ratcliffe's book and the 4i model, where it focuses on interpreting the criminal environment as what he calls an active activity, and then to influence the decision maker followed by an informed based impact on the criminal environment. So that is kind of basically what it is, but it's from a more general perspective, is a business model on how to actually run the whole organization. Now, were you the first person to hold this position or was there somebody before you? Well, the ILP project was born out of, well, I worked as an analyst. And then in mm-hmm. 2015, we decided to to do a huge conference together with Europol in Denmark about analysis, basically. Mm-hmm. So in 2016, we hosted the first ECAC the European Crime Analysis Conference. And uh, from then on, you know, we had discussion in the organization. We decided to create this project where I was the project, project manager and program manager for since 2016. So yeah, I was I was there when it was born. I mm-hmm. did the note to my managers about the, the need for this kind of project. But actually there was also, prior to that, there was some recommendation done in some of the early reports on because back in 2013 we first have all the analysis units out in the district denmark is divided into 12 districts and in each district there is an analysis unit and after a few years they did an evaluation on how things were there at that time it says well we need to have somewhat a national project that could support the analyst and that was the ilp project so it came out of a conference but it also came out of a need for a, for a very strong emphasis on all our analysts you know <laughs> they needed to be taken care of so it's so that's what we do and that's what we are still doing in the project mm-hmm. we are supporting the analysts with courses with seminars some of the initiative we have we have forums where all analysts meets once a year to discuss to be very nerdy out in breakouts <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can have breakouts all the way from open source intelligence to prevention work, to social network analysis, to ANPR workshops, to crime script workshops, to leadership workshops, shops, if you are like a, a manager of an analysis unit. So we have a lot of breakout sessions at these forums. So a lot of different initiatives to support the analysis profession in Denmark. I would say also training. I mean... We have been lucky enough to have people like Dr. Spencer Cheney to do some skills development program for, for many of our analysts. We have had geographic profiling courses. We have had crime script courses. You know, so we have been quite fortunate to actually be able to invite some of the best teachers to Denmark to teach in analysis. So, yeah. So, 
So one of my major gripes with training mm -hmm. and whether it's a conference or even some that's specific to break breakout specific training during the week for analysis mm -hmm. is that there doesn't seem to be anything really all that tangible, all that practical. It's somebody lecturing mm -hmm. and the students consuming and they just mm -hmm. go from one thing to another and it's not a lot of, okay, I actually can learn a skill and then take it back to the office, right? You might get an Excel class. You might get a particular mm. program that you might get some information on. But for the most part, it's a lecture style training that mm. is all, you, all the students are getting at the end of the day is awareness. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm... Um... I mean, I'm really happy you asked this question. I mean, I mean, maybe the listener even think that that we we planned that, but <laughs> we didn't. You know, you know, we focus a lot of what we call embedded training, right? And embedded training is basically playing around with your own data, make it practical. You know, putting that theoretical layer on top of the real data, on top of your real work. That is how you can actually benefit from something from training. I I mean, I totally agree on what you're saying and. Of course, we do have that these training where you go to, you know, and listen to someone and then you go back to your organization and that was good for you. But how do we make sure that this does not only become good for you, but it comes good for the organization, right? And I think, I mean, I can't strongly underline enough embedded training. Embedded training is what actually have changed some of the things that have been going well in Denmark. And I think is 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 the best way to go about this is that, you know, embedded make sure that what you do is something that could benefit the organization and you work with real stuff you know it becomes too too abstract and too too far away from reality when you start learning a lot that doesn't have anything to do with reality so so that's we have done that i mean the the skills development program that we had done with university college london facilitated facilitated by spencer cheney and some of his colleagues it has been on real cases it has been on real data where he's, he just basically supported them in doing better analysis. And at some of, their, some of the groups, we have investigators working alongside analysts and even some managers sitting in those classes as well. And what you do in the end of these, these trainings is that you make sure that you invite the decision makers and you actually make a presentation about your findings and your recommendation, and then you give them a report. And you don't give them like a 50 page, 100 page long report. No, you give them, you know, a two pager where it says, this is what's going on. This is what we can do. This is our recommendations. And, and even better, you know, outlining some of the effects that you see that can come out of this, this training and this operation and, and getting even further ahead, something like how does good success look like for this case? You know, I, I don't think we are really good at discussing what is success when it comes to running these kind of projects and trainings and also real projects, real, real cases, you know, we just do stuff. We do stuff and then we, you know, but what is the effect and what is, and how does success look like? And if you go to Jerry Ratcliffe's new book, no, his previous book, Reducing Crime, a Companion for Police Leaders, he have something, he have a, he, he distinguishes between input, output and outcome. And police, we're really good at input and output, right? You know, we do this and we arrest them, but what is the outcome? What is it that we want to do with this operation? What is the effect? What is the long-term effect of doing this and that? Yeah, so, I know. Yeah. Jerry's going to, everybody's going to think we, Jerry put us up to this. We've mentioned <laughs> him so many times. Yeah, we're not going to talk more about him. <laughs> no, he's done. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> you mentioned success then. So when you look back from, since you started with the ILP, where are your successes? Oh. Tough question, isn't it? You know, I think in a humble way, I would say that we have supported a climate of change in Danish police. And I think we have supported a climate and culture of curiosity in a way that, that I'm proud of. And I don't think we can go much further than that. I mean, we cannot because a lot of de development is going out, is going on out in the districts. But by hosting a lot of seminars, trainings, conferences, and stuff like that. We do push the curiosity every time we do this. I mean, I get more and more emails. We have people start doing projects based on data. We have people thinking about actually, all right, we need to have a baseline before we can actually know what we're doing makes any sense, you know? 
So uh, yeah, so I think that being humble, I would say, climate of change and and some some culture of curiosity when it comes to 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 ILP, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If that's I guess, yeah. Yeah, I guess on the, the the other end of that, I mean, what's I guess what's something that maybe when you first started as like, oh, we we won't be dealing with this in 2023. We're we're gonna get this knocked out, and yet we're you're still struggling to get that fixed. You know, something that we've really been really bit bad at is that the whole tie and link to university. You know, in Denmark, that's something that we need to, and we are doing that right now. I have to say, I mean, things have changed a lot over the over the last few years since we started the whole special crime unit my commissioner my deputy commissioner all the way down to the superintendents they are so focused focusing on proper analysis they are all they are all keen to do all the things that we have been talking about for the last six or seven years so but yeah i mean we're still struggling with the same things that we did 10 years ago but that that i mean just as i mentioned earlier we're still struggling with what drug users right we're still struggling, mm-hmm. struggling with that kind of crime but we're also struggling with the whole framework of actually making sure that our analysis and our analysts are doing what they're supposed to do of course we're still struggling with that but it's going better and i think i think we are we are getting to a place where we we do not only talk about it but we actually do it now you know we get it out in the hands of the analysts out in the sharp end as we call but i mean we really need to think about because there's i always use this quote by by john eck and i also used it at ecac i think we're going to talk about ecac soon but it is my favorite quote quote and it's something it says something in the line of problem oriented policing is so logical it is surprising it needs justification and you know it all comes down to that that we're still struggling to make sure that people think that ilp problem oriented policing evidence based policing you know uh harm focused policing and you know all these strategies police models that that is a good idea but you know and it's funny that we still have to justify that right um, yeah. but if you don't go to the doctor and she treats you with something she thinks work right mm-hmm. there is a scientific method behind why she subscribes you one kind of medicine in favor of another right the same yeah. goes for policing we need to know the the the, the cause before we know the cure right so it's i mean we need to look to to better understand what is the drivers behind crime before we can be proactive. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I I think in a way though the fundamentals are logical. I but I think their purpose is and what they're selling is is what needs to be convinced of. And and I almost think in a way it's like a a diet or a particular exercise regimen, right? <laughs> like every, you know, the whole point is to get into better shape, but which one yeah. you choose, you know, you know, the science behind it is to, you know, calories and burning and and all that other stuff and consumption of food, but like how you go about it to get there is mm. is what's having to be sold. So it's mm. not just a matter of yeah, it's logical, but why are we using this particular method over others? Because mm. it, and it, it all comes back to money, right? As soon as departments find out that uh, there's grants or money behind certain stuff, keywords, I always think of community-oriented policing in the 90s. There wasn't mm-hmm. a grant written, it seems like, in the 90s that didn't have community-oriented policing behind it, right? Mm, yeah. And it just yeah. these key words get attached to to money and grants, and it seems like that's why we constantly are taking one program, one project after the other, even though they seem logical or even maybe seem like, well, shouldn't you have been doing that all along <laughs> type, type, mm, yeah. type thing? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I think that's, I mean, that's, that's universal, right? But mm-hmm. I have to, but I also have to be honest and say, I mean, Denmark is a very rich country, right? We are only, we are one police force, right? How many are in the US? I don't even know, right? Thousands, right? 18,000. Yeah, exactly. So just think about that. We are, yeah small country low crime rate we have one police force we have you know we have really strong data quality compared to other places i'm not saying we have perfect data data set and perfect data quality but we have good data quality right i'm not saying we have the money in the world we don't but we're a rich country so we can do a lot of good things you know but i think 
compare that to what they do in New Zealand. I always bring up New Zealand, which is the best, you know, the best in class when it comes to the world on ILP and evidence-based practices, right? They they also they also 12 districts. They have the same amount of inhabitants like we have, but they have an embedded evidence-based policing center in police. You know, that is something that we need to look at them and look at, okay, what countries that you can actually compare yourself to are doing things that we are not doing yet. So even though I think we're doing a great job in Denmark on many things, I think there is a, a need for, for actually learning by the best. And one place for us to look is definitely looking at New Zealand and also looking at the UK, how they are, how, I mean, just how the academia is so embedded in policing, right? It's, 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 it's quite good yeah, to see. Should you look at yeah. Sweden? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can always look at Sweden, and I, and it's funny that you mentioned it because I was maybe a little bit rough on them back in 2018 when I when I once was interviewed on how I see things around Europe. And you know, it's I'm glad you pointed out because you know the thing is that, and that is my problem right now is that, you know, when you're in the middle of a change program like the ILP project, we were doing conferences, we were doing training, we were doing all these initiatives. And, you know, when you're in the middle of that, you think, oh, my God, things are going so well. And then you see problems all, all up place. You're like, well, we're doing better than them, you know. And then you actually mature in your field and you realize, all right, yeah, we have a lot of good ideas. Maybe some of them are not really implemented yet. And that is something that you learn after a while. And sorry to the Swedes if I was too rough on them <laughs> or other countries, because I think they are they're doing they're doing all the best they can. They have some really good initiatives going on over there. They have right now, they have a lot of problems with shootings. And I, I know they are doing all they can to figure out how to actually get on top of that. And but it also comes down to it's I mean, there is only a bridge between Denmark and Sweden, right? So whatever happens in Sweden, we need to know that that's going to be spillover. Things are going to happen in Denmark. And why don't we support each other with best practice, best knowledge? And that's, that is something that I think we need to be better at. And that is something that I think ECAC, the conference that we run, can do in a way. You know, it can actually get a lot of people together in the same room and get them to discuss, be inspired by some of the best scholars about what to do when it comes to shootings or serious organized crime. And this year at ECAT, we had a lot of people from Sweden coming to Denmark, and that was wonderful. And I have emails coming in asking about getting the presentation from the speakers and all that. So they are very keen to actually get into a conversation about what kind of strategies can be used against all these shootings. And yeah. for those, for the listeners, that was from the Reducing Crime podcast, if that wasn't clear about the, about the screen take. <laughs> yeah, uh, I promise I, not to mention him again. So. Yeah, I know. That's why I, I'm <laughs> being careful as well. So, and I do yeah. want to get to the conference in a yeah. second, but one thing I want to ask before we do get there is the struggle for implementation. We had mentioned it already. I can see why the U.S. struggles with certain implementation because there's 17, 18,000 police departments and to establish a standard, to establish one way of doing things when you have thousands of, of leaders, it's, it's really hard for, for the U.S. to get on the same page and to implement one strategy. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned with, with Denmark and a lot of the countries outside of the U.S., there's only one department. So why do you think there's still this struggle for implementation? Well, there's a lot of theories on implementation, right? And you can even look back at, you know, Goldstein. He was writing about if you want a successful implementation organization when it comes to, to policing, you need to have an engaged leadership board. You know, you have mm -hmm. you need to have leaders that can actually catch those balls that you throw up, you know, to them. And then they some of them, of course, will not be catched by them, but fall down to the floor. And then that was not a good idea. But you need a very strong leadership board. You need leaders that actually walk their talk. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Alex Murray, he was at ECAC this year. He's a chief constable in, in the UK and a wonderful man and wonderful speaker. And he talked about, all right, well, it's a big boat and you have to steer it, but you need to get your feet wet you need to get out there and do stuff you know mm -hmm. so 
implementation is actually about catching these balls that analyst comes up with and try to make them try to make something out of them right based on evidence based on on informed decision making and then of course i think it's it's also goldstein who writes about that you need a pool of skilled and curious analysts that goes without saying right before you actually can implement some of these things we need to have smart people helping us implementing them but and then of course you also need some some outsiders to help you to look at the of the, the organization from the outside and here i talk about a strong tie to, to academia before so these 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 three things like engaged leadership skilled curious employees and then some outside unembedded but embedded view on the organization i think that would be like the three key things from a more from my perspective to be better on implementing things and that also explains some of the things that we have been struggling with in Denmark. You know, it's been sometimes in the early days, it was it was hard to, I mean, being talking, I mean, in 2016, standing in front of police officer, also leaders talking about ILP, you know, they didn't really like it, you know, <laughs> that's something new, they, but they didn't, you know, and it was tough in 2016, 17, 18 to talk about this, you know, it was I was always really tired when I got home, you know, I'm like, so when do I quit this? Because it's too much, it's too hard work, right? Yeah. But but now we start to see these small success. We start to see the spillover and we have, I mean, I have conversations now with people that I wouldn't have had for five years ago, for sure. And I mean, that 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 comes to deputy directors. You know, I was just up at a ANPR workshop last week, last week in, in, in a district and I mean, I went and saw one of the leaders there on his board, his whiteboard, it says evidence-based police practices, ILP, we need to know what is the baseline. You know, when you see these, you kind of, you kind of get happy. Yeah. What's INPR? ANPR, you know, the automatic number plate uh, reg reg registration. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yes, yes, yes. I got you. Yeah. I got you. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, it was let's probably get in... my Danglish. Yeah. <laughs> let's Sorry. get into the conference then. And this is just a couple of weeks back. What are some takeaways? What are some highlights of the conference? Well, I, th I think the first, I mean, the biggest highlight, the biggest takeaway was that, I mean, so many people came and so mm -hmm. many people were happy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we had 300 feet, 350 people from more than 25 countries coming to Denmark for two days mm -hmm. uh, with 27 speakers from nine to seven, no, from nine to five, two days. And, you know, we had some of the best, best speakers in the world to come and talk about. Of course, the three-letter soups, you know, as mm. I call it, ILP, evidence-based policing, pop. Mm. But we also have breakouts where we get into social network analysis. We have the esteemed Dr. Martin Bouchard from Simon Fraser University. He's wonderful. He's smart. And he brought his colleague. And they both did some fantastic work on SNA in that breakout. Then we have some some breakouts on cybercrime from, from different partners. And we had focused on prevention this time as well. We had some people coming from Metropolitan Police talking about Modern Slavery Act. We had some, yeah, just lots of different speakers talking on different topics. And But I think what it all comes down to is that we had some, it was really high level. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. fun to, to have someone like Alex Murray from UK, having Spencer Cheney, having director Rachel Tuffin from College of Police and coming and telling us what works, why do we need to do this and this and this, and what have they done in the UK to implement more evidence-based practices in their in their system, in when they go, you know, in the education system as well. She's she was wonderful. So and we ended out on day one with a leadership panel with my commissioner, deputy commissioner, and then and Dr. Radcliffe and Alex Murray on the role as a senior leader today, what makes a good leader. So it was two fun days and the feedback has been really good this year. So I'm happy about that. Really. Good, good. Yeah. Now, was there a, did anything come out of that in terms of to do's? Like, was there any special committees created or any decorations of next steps? Well, I think, I mean, it's funny because I mean, there's a lot, I've gotten a lot of emails about, so what now, right? Mm -hmm. because you come back and you feel this void, you know, you feel like, mm -hmm. oh my God, there were so many good ideas. What can we do? Mm -hmm. But I think we need to start with some of the basic stuff is that, all right, at least from, from our perspective, we need to start, how are we monitoring maybe organized criminal groups? Can we use social network analysis to look at the, the change over time? We can, mm -hmm. how, what can we draw out from 
the presentation by by Marcin Bouchard coming into all right what what kind of preventive measure can be in place we have what we would call an evidence-based project in Denmark called United Against Violence which is based on the theory of focused deterrence it's actually from from the director David Kennedy from the US he was at at ECAC in 2020 I think yeah he talked about focused deterrence and and we're running a project now on that so so there was a lot of different takeaways I think it's hard to just say that was only this takeaway if you know what I mean there was a lot of takeaways yeah. But, yeah. but I think there was also the chance to network and uh, that networking at 10 o'clock in the bar, that yeah. is also good, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, but it's not, it's, it's not just something that, that is, I mean, it's very important that you suddenly get, get in contact with people and you talk to them and you get their email and you, and, dis, and you discuss. And I, I mean, I'm not kidding if I say I have like 30 emails from people asking if they could get that presentation, if I could put them in contact with this or even students writing and saying, all right, I need, I need a project design. Do you think it's okay that I reach out to now it was Aiden site button from UCL or something like that. Right. So yeah, it's, uh, so I, th I think the takeaway are, are numerous. I'm even going to try to do this when I go to conferences is to try to establish you have all these great minds in the same place at the same time and to mm. try to establish some kind of endeavor project working group whatever it is mm. out of that mm. right let's yeah. let's yeah. try to keep this where do we go next with with this idea because a lot of these conferences it is reporting it is you know descriptive and but the the idea that it kind of just stops there and everybody just goes home after mm, that. Mm, mm. Uh, the, the idea, and I don't know if in a scenario with your thing, you, you know, you you talked about it being two days. I don't know if that you'd you add a third day next year to see talk about you know what's next. You know, we've been talking yeah. two days for about this. What what's next and maybe no one shows up for the third day because no one wants no. to sign up for another project but it would no, be sure. you know interesting to get like okay where do we go from here yeah and i think i mean i i totally understand what you're saying i think you're right about i mean but the thing we do with ecac and i'm, uh, I'm not sure what they do in other countries but what we try to do is that we try to make it very practical mm -hmm. you know this is not an academic even though there are really good academics coming but we are always inviting academics who works who work in practice. You know, I mean, I to be quite honest, there's nothing worse than going to a conference where it's only academic conference where it's people coming presenting their papers and then walk away again. You know, mm -hmm. uh, of course that can be interesting as well. But this ECAC is very very much focused on practice. So that means that all the speakers who are there are working with practitioners in the real field. You know, and mm -hmm. showing results. And we even have people coming from you know, showing no result, but at least they tried, you know, mm -hmm. and also just, we had people, some wonderful people from Holland, Stein Reuter and his friend Boomsmai, and they discuss, they explain what they're doing in Holland as well. And also with the society of evidence-based policing down there. And, you know, just having them on stage where you have a police officer working with a scholar on stage at the same time, you know, that combination, that, 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 that gives something. So when you go back, the void is maybe not as big as if you only go go and listen to academic paper, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. so I see ECAC almost like a training event, you know, where you actually, you do learn a little bit about how to do SNA based on reality. Yeah. So, so yeah. during the conference or maybe the trainings that that's back into the ILP project, what what technology are you using? What software programs are are you using? Is everybody on the same software programs or is it are you seeing a variety well we are we do have the same platform here in denmark so we all use the same platform mm -hmm. and uh, when it comes to analysis but also to search in the system so we have the same platform of course we have a lot of systems just the anpr system you know with the number mm -hmm. plates is another system but when it comes to actually doing analysis we're doing it the same system uh, and that is such a benefit you know when you do it in the same system you have the same data you look at so you have access to all the data Mm -hmm. That is that is very important. But there's also a lot of problems coming with that, you know, because when you buy some a platform, you know, off the shelf, I'm not saying it's off the shelf, but one one system doesn't fit all, as they say. Right. 
And we do have problems with that now, but that will be handled. But things does take time. But we do have issues with if we want to do some social network analysis right now, we have to figure out ways to do that because we want to do what we were taught by Bouchard and Marie at ECAC, you know? So mm-hmm. these conferences actually raise questions to the system, which is so important and crucial and essential to be better as an organization. So yeah, we, we use the same platform. Yeah, and I, I do think that's a, another struggle that we have here in the States is there are, everybody's on a slightly different program and you have all these different vendors and they want it to be one-stop shopping, right? They want mm-hmm. their their system to be the end-all be-all and then it ends up because it's an end-all be-all, it's tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars that yeah. the police department has to invest in. And so I think there's the struggle there of, you know, trying to get everybody on the same page. But I also fear that as these programs get more sophisticated, that analysts are just pushing buttons on the screen and not really understanding the math or the calculation of what's going beyond behind the curtain. And, and it's, I think it's a struggle why these programs are great. They make, they can crunch numbers, they can summarize the data and they can put it in a way that's more consumable to our end user. I, mm-hmm. I do feel that because of the, their power and that like analysts truly aren't understanding what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we, we do training down in Europol. We have, I've done that since 2012, 2013. So almost 10 years, we have done what we call operational intelligence analysis training in Europol and CPOL, which is the College of Policing in Europe. And we always get like 25 or 30 students down there for a week in Budapest. We have done it in The Hague at Europol, but now we're doing it in Budapest. And what we do is that we spend one one week with them without computers. You know, <laughs> we have to, we go back to basic as we call them. Mm-hmm. We, we discuss what is it when we draw a line between two entities? What, what is, what is a flow chart? What is a link chart? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we draw hypo- draw conclusion? What is a hypothesis? How do we end up with the right conclusion and all this? And that week, you know, done that for 10 years now, we always get, I mean, people are so happy about going back to basic because in my world, basic also become very modern because then you suddenly do not just only push buttons, but you actually know what you do when you, when you see your data, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so that's, it's, it's a fun experience to do that. And we're going to do that again this year. And I have some wonderful colleagues that I'm doing it with. So it's, it's a lot of fun. But it's also actually a lot of discussion about why are we doing and why are we so conditioned to make make these kind of reasoning and make make these kind of conclusion based on our biases and all that. So we also have an element of psychology in it, even though I'm not an expert on that. But we have good books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So it's yeah. it's it's a fun week. Just just to basically answer your question a bit is that we need to know we need to go back to basics sometimes because. I don't understand the algorithm but in SNA today on some of these platforms, right? So I don't know what's happening when I when it's missioning between this or whatever, you know? So we need to go back to basics. Based on the career, based on everything that you've accomplished, you are a really nice balance of officer, analyst, academic. You're a true student of the profession. I think that balance is is what is more needed. I, 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 as I mentioned before, you know, I think certain analysts just stay at that descriptive area. They don't necessarily get to that next level where they're eat, sleep, you know, the, a particular topic, becoming a subject matter expert, knowing, being well-read, the writing aspect that you brought to the table, the presentation aspect that you you mentioned. I, I really think that a lot of analysts just stay in what the computer is producing and not getting into outside the department. They're not getting into reading as much as they can. They're not writing. There's very few presentations given on their work. And, but I think what you've described here today, what you've gotten into is exactly what we need more of. Well, that's kind of you to say, thank you.
Uh, well, I just think it's very, very important, but it also comes out to our managers that you have with the skilled analysts that you have when you go into a meeting or you go somewhere, use them, but also, you know, make sure that you put up some some challenges and you make them get out of the get out of the room, you know, get out and meet people. We have right now in Denmark, we have some issues about some of our civilian analysts. They want to come out on, you know, driving the police car, you know. They need to go out and see what does it mean when someone is having a knife fight or when someone is drunk driving or if you catch a burglar or something. What is that? I mean, sitting in your own little, behind your own little computer screen and doesn't get out of the room. You know, you need to get out and and see the real world before you can actually understand. And then you need to, at least in my perspective, question yourself all the time. What I'm doing is that the right thing? And uh, do we have any evidence saying to us that, all right, we are going the right way? Or we, maybe we don't have any evidence, but at least we're doing something and we do create some kind of baseline by doing this. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, our last segment of the show is Words to the World. This is where I give the guests the last word. Jacob, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Wow. That is a huge question and a possibility. And I'm not sure that that my humble contribution to this field gives me the possibility or power to suggest any new ideas to the world of analysis. I will, I think, however, say that if you go to work as an analyst or even as a manager leader, I mean, there's, I would say, three or four things. Always, always know what the problem is. Always go, that, that's going to be the beginning of all the work you do. What is the problem? And then state how success looked like with your analysis. I mentioned that earlier in the speech, but I think I will bring that word out to the world. That is something that needs to be in front of your page on your analysis report. What does success look like? And doing that, what what is the effect? And don't be afraid of actually typing up recommendations. You know, just, you know, if you are well-grounded in your analysis, your recommendations, they are solid, and they are informed based. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. You've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. But I yeah. do appreciate you being on the show, Jacob. Thank you so much. And you be safe. Thank you. You too. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.